I'm the A. And I'm the B. And this is where we talk about the C. Welcome to ABC Crime Podcast. Hey guys, it's Batty B, and I'm going to be taking us through the case this week with the help of my fabulous co-host, Lady Ace. Hey. I'm going to start with the ABCs, which A is for alias, and they don't really have an official alias, but Knight Rider and Lady Sundown, and then some sources called them the Bonnie and Clyde of Georgia. Ooh. B is for body count, and they have two victims. C is for crime, kidnapping, rape, and torture murders. So our first killer was born July 15th of 1953 in Georgia. He was the youngest of three children. It was said that his childhood was happy. He grew up in a loving and caring home. He got along well with his parents and his siblings, He grew up doing all the things regular happy kids do. He had many friends and was the class clown and a flirt. When he turned 10, he started to test authority, which I kind of feel like we all do. Mm -hmm. Preteen. Yes. He was spanked by a teacher and talked back to a principal. So those were kind of more than what I did. I never went that far. But you also didn't go to school in the 60s. I think that was just the normal punishment i feel though that like back in the day you knew you would get your butt beat by your parents though if you ever did anything like that i feel like the respect of adults was way more focused on back Mm -hmm. then and now it's like (laughs) kids can get away with everything because their parents anyways we won't get into that (laughs) (laughs) good call See, I couldn't find out if he graduated high school, but it doesn't matter anyways because he became a car thief and isn't a great person. Oh. (laughs) So this stellar guy also finds two women that will actually marry him. His first wife was Joe Ann Browning, but he divorced her after three years so he can quickly elope with his new found love, leaving behind his wife and three children. Ooh, so it ended in a in a fair. Yes. Enter our other killer. Our other killer was born on June seventh of nineteen sixty four in Tennessee. She was in the middle of five children. They were middle class Americans who were living the dream of owning a successful construction business and having the ability to have the wife stay home with the children. The only negative thing I could find about her childhood was that her father was a distant alcoholic who died in March of 1974. He got into a motorcycle accident while he was under the influence. Mm. And she was nine at the time. And she was kind of like a shy slash quiet girl. And after this happened, she became even more introverted. Okay, hold on. Pause. She is 11 years younger than our killer mm-hmm. when did they get married so maybe like wait okay, you will do this I'm like, every freaking um, time <laughs> how old was she was yeah. she a child yeah so <laughs> that's like literally my next paragraph 
Perfect segue. (laughs) (laughs) In the fall of 1979, our now 26-year-old killer met and fell in love with our female killer, who is 15. Yuck. Yeah. Their life was fast and furious. They began committing robberies wherever their love took them, which is like all over the country. But in 1982, this is where their life of crime takes a turn. Ken Dooley, who worked at a youth center, was at home one night when his house was shot at four times. Another employee, Linda Adair's home, was attacked only this time with Molotov cocktails. Both employees received a call shortly before the attacks at their homes from an unidentified female that said they would both die for the abuse she received while living there. The victims couldn't identify the voice on the other end of the line. So just keep that in the back of your mind. We'll come back to that. Okay. One instance of robbery was committed while our killer was nine months pregnant with twins. So how she didn't think that would be an identifying factor, I have no idea, but I would assume she would be pretty memorable. How would you even find the energy at nine months pregnant with twins to even... get out of the house i don't know maybe it's because she's younger maybe and not older i don't know i've heard pregnancy is different depending on if you're younger versus older but i have no idea about that she was nine months pregnant and was robbing a lady at gunpoint in the parking lot she was arrested and gave birth to the twins in jail the twins stayed with her husband's parents until she was released What a great way to come into the world. I know. Great, great memories. Mm -hmm. Great birthing story. Yeah. So our first murder victim was a 13-year-old little girl who had a terrible childhood. Lisa Ann Milliken was born March 1969 in Georgia. She was sexually abused by her father for three years and had just been removed from the home. Not because of the abuse, but because of the family's living conditions. They didn't actually have a home. They were living in a car and had no money for food and obviously a place to call their own. So a little over a month later, she would be murdered. She was moved from home to home until she landed in Ethel Harp's home. This was a group home. And on the night of September 25th, 1982, the house parent took Lisa and some other children to the Riverbend Mall. But instead of hanging out and having a good time at the arcade, this sweet girl was abducted by the couple who was out trolling for a victim. They took her to a nearby hotel where they both raped her. They handcuffed her and she was forced to sleep naked on the floor. The following morning, they picked up their twins from the babysitter's house, drove back to the motel, and our female killer beat her with a stick, but she never fell unconscious, so she was brutally raped by the male killer multiple times over the next couple of days. When they were done, they handcuffed the little girl in their car and drove her to her death. Once in the Little River Canyon located in Alabama, our female killer injected the little girl with Drano a total of six times. Oh my gosh. And she told Lisa this injection would just put her to sleep and that they would drive away without her knowing where they went. This, however, did not do that, and it was intended to kill our victim. She suffered and begged for her life for 30 minutes in excruciating pain. So our female killer 
told her to stand up by a ledge and shot her in the back. Once she was dead, our killer kneed her over a cliff where she fell 80 feet into a location that was used for a garbage dump. Our female killer called several police jurisdictions to report the body's location. Her twins slept the entire time through this whole ordeal. On September 29th, DeKalb County Sheriff Office responded to one of her calls and discovered Lisa's body. This recorded call would be one she wished she never made. They found three empty syringes and bloody jeans that they would later tie to the crime scene. I was actually interested about how Drano works. And so Drano... I'm sure everybody knows, but it's a household drainage cleaner made to, made from either sodium hypochlorate, which is bleach, um, sodium hydroxide, which is lye, mm. sodium chloride, sodium nitrate, and aluminum. But how does it work? So once poured down the drain, Drano works to create a chemical reaction to decompose organic matter causing the blockage. Mm-hmm. Yes, it basically eats away. Yes. Whatever is causing the blockage. So slate.com, I looked up further information because I wanted to know what it actually did if injected into a body. Uh So studies have indicated that intravenous injections of large quantities of bleach, Drano, Mm -hmm. can cause acute kidney injuries and thrombosis or blood clots. Bleach causes red blood cells to rupture thus preventing them from carrying oxygen to essential organs and other parts of the body, which could possibly bring about a slow death. Okay, I was just going to say, it sounds like it would be like over a period of time and not instant. And that's probably why she didn't die immediately. Right. And so this is why she was also in pain, because the chemical would inflame the lining of the veins along with an intensely painful burning sensation at the injection site and sometimes near the chest. Oh, my gosh. The chlorine in bleach can also alter the pH of one's blood, possibly triggering cardiac arrhythmias and kidney damage. This is obviously more for an extended period of time, not just six injections. I'm sure that it was very painful. Oh, yeah. The part about the veins and all of that is for sure what she suffered. The kidney damage would be... Over time. mm -hmm, Longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And the kidney also filters the body's blood, putting it in more direct contact with contaminants like bleach. There's a good chance that the bleach will lead to death through the extreme pain involved usually stops people from injecting large quantities of the chemical. Which is why drinking it may be more fatal. Oh my gosh. So the injection is more painful than if you were to drink it. So, oh, that poor girl. I know. So much torture. And you know what this, so far, this case reminds me of? The Moore's murders. Yes. Ugh. Couples who kill and rape children just on a whole nother mm, level, because totally. in a way, it creates like the perfect cover. Which is scary in and of itself. Yeah. Because I know personally I'd be more scared of some guy by himself versus if he were with his wife. Totally. And they had their children with them too. So that created a whole other sense of security. Yep. A false sense of security. Totally. So on October 4th, they tried to abduct another 13-year-old girl, but she ran. This brave little girl would identify the voice on the recorded call to the lady that tried to abduct her. Oh, good. The call from... When she called to report Lisa's body. 
that was recorded. Okay. This will, we'll all come full circle. Okay. I'm just trying to give you like a timeline and then we'll tie it all together. Okay. The evening of October 4th, so the very same night after they tried to abduct the 13-year-old, our killers would find their next victims. Our female killer was cruising around in her brown Dodge car when she spotted an engaged couple, Janice Chapman and John Hancock. She introduced herself as Lady Sundown and asked for directions. Our female killer then proceeds to act like she didn't know what the directions meant, so the couple offered to show her where to go. So they drove around and met up with the killer's husband, who introduced himself as Knight Rider. And come to find out, these were their call names for their CB radio, which they were into. Okay, if someone introduced themselves as Lady Sundown, I'd immediately red flag. Red flag. Get away from this psycho. And then to meet her husband. Oh, I'm Knight Rider. Fuck no. Right? I know. I was like, it's not like it's Lady Whistledown. No. And it definitely takes you to a scary. Lady Sundown. Were were, were a lot of people going down? Were a lot of people calling themselves Lady? Like, hi, I'm Lady Ace. They'd be like, (laughs) I'd be like, the fuck? What's your You're crazy. I'm out. You need directions? Sorry, not helping. His car was red and two kids were in the back seat of the vehicle. At this time, our killers separate the couple. Men in the red car, women in the brown car. For what reason? Because they said, well, if we get separated, one of you should be with me to help me get to the place and one of you should be with my wife to help her get to the place we're going. And... Of course, he probably was like, okay, that's kind of sketchy. But with the children in the car, that does give you a different feeling. I guess. And they just ended up driving around. And then John asked if they could pull over for a bathroom break. So both cars pulled over. Our female killer told John to walk a ways down the trail so that he would have privacy. He was then shot in the back. Our killers grab Janice and drive away back to their motel, where they proceed to torture and rape her. The same M.O. as with Lisa, even the injecting of Drano. The only difference this time is they used the Drano for torture and knew that they would have to shoot her. So that's what they did, or more accurately, our female killer did. She shot Janice in the back. She fell forward, but she didn't die, so our male killer picked her up and placed her next to a tree, where our female killer came and shot her point-blank in the chest two times. Oh my gosh. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. You said in the beginning the body count was only two. Lady Ace, can you stop? Look at my next paragraph. It literally says, luckily, John Hancock... Did not die. Oh, phew. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Once he was sure that both cars had left, he picked himself up from the ground where he had played dead. He then was picked up by a trucker. The trucker took him to a hospital where he had the bullet removed, and the very next day he went to the police department. While waiting to talk to the detective, he heard a woman's voice, a voice that shook him to his core. It was the voice of his abductor. (gasps) They were in the middle of conducting an interview with the little girl who was almost abducted earlier in the day. They had played the recording of our female killer reporting the body of Lisa Milliken to see if they were connected. 
Sure enough, the little girl recognized the voice, and John gave them descriptions of the killers and their cars. His story was not believed until the the recorded phone call that our female killer had placed started putting the puzzle pieces together. Their first clue was that the cars had out-of-state license plates, so they went to the detention center and pulled a list of 25 names, and on that list was all girls who lived out of state that came to the detention center. So that is how everything is coming full circle, and they realize all of these situations have a connection. Okay. So 12 days later, they were arrested. Good. This case probably wouldn't have been solved if it wasn't for certain circumstances happening. Definitely. Like, if he wouldn't have walked into the police station as they were interviewing that little girl, Mm -hmm. that connection never would have been made. Yeah. No, and if he wouldn't have lived and if the little girl would have successfully been abducted, this could have been so much worse. Totally. Because as we all know, they tend to keep going until they're caught. Mm-hmm. So our killers were identified as Alvin and Judith Nelly. A pregnant Judith was booked into jail. Once oh, again, <laughs> her baby was born in jail. Her trial began March 7th of 1983. She was given a public defender, Bob French. And it's noted that Bob French hated his client from the moment he met her. But he did do his job. Our killer was 18 at this time. Oh, my gosh. And three kids and two murders. Yep, she's killing it. So her defense attorney actually tries to have her case moved to juvenile court. But Judge Randall Cole denied the motion. Mr. French then asked for a psych eval. And in January of 1983, the evaluations came back. She was fit for trial. Not only was she fit, but she had superior intelligence. So this kind of backfired on him. So not only was he working on his court arguments, but he was also making sure his client was ready for trial in more ways than one. Judith actually received dental care and an upgraded wardrobe. The fuck? I know. What? <laughs> you know, he dental care? Yes. So I'll uh, it will come into play in just a second. So Lady Ace, what do you think her defense was? Um, I'm gonna say with the dental work and new wardrobe and that she's a mother of three. Mm, it could either be like a lonely housewife or um, she was also a victim of her husband. Ding, ding, ding. So French told the court how a 15-year-old Judith fell for our much older killer and she was subject to manipulation and abuse both mentally, physically, and sexually. This caused her to become brainwashed. They also called his first wife to the stand, and she proceeded to tell the jury that Alvin beat her their whole marriage and that he drugged and attempted rape on her teenage sister. When she tried to leave the marriage, he would threaten her and the children. And as damning as this was, the prosecution proved that she was a bigamist and a liar. So before the divorce was final from 
um, Alvin, when he, like, left her to marry Judith, mm-hmm. she was actually already remarried. Oh. So, there's that. So, mm. so that's not a credible Yeah, but honestly, I don't think it's going to matter. Okay. So then French called Judith to the stand. She was smiling and laughing and seemed to have zero remorse. So this was another bad move on his Mm -hmm. part. This totally broke the victim's storyline. She continued to claim that she was Alvin's slave and he dictated to her through the kidnapping, rapes, and murders. The prosecution, however, was not buying their bullshit. They also had four young girls who identified Judith as the woman who tried to abduct them. Plus, John Hancock had one hell of a testimony against her, but his story didn't cement home that Judith was the mastermind behind everything. There was, in his story, there wasn't anything that said it was her over him, if that makes sense. Because everything in his story, they were there together, right? So he couldn't prove who was the mastermind. Because every time he would bring up a point, it was, oh, but Alvin was there as well. Right. You know. So on March 21st at 4.30 p.m., the jury left for deliberations. By 1045 the following morning, they had a verdict. She was found guilty of kidnapping and homicide and was sentenced to life in prison. But on April 18th, when she went back to the sentencing, the trial judge, Judge Cole, sentenced her to death by the electric chair. Oh, wow. Yeah. How many times have you heard that happening? Well, where they get like a worse sentence than what the jury had suggested. Well, not often, but I'm surprised because she is only 18. But, I mean, well, she's piece of shit. <laughs> What's the saying? She made her bed, now she has to lay in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Then we come to Alvin, who was a coward and scared of Judith's word, so he just pleads guilty to kidnapping, bodily harm, and intent to murder. He was sentenced to two life terms. He's actually dead. Something about a surgery complications that killed him October 21st, 2005 in the Bostic State Prison. I hope it was painful. Me and too. what what happened to Judy? Is she still alive? Did she get electrocuted? I'm dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> My next sentence is <laughs> Judith was sent to the death row at the Julia Tutwiler prison for women in Alabama. She was the youngest woman to be sentenced to death in America. She appealed two times in 1988 and another in 1989, and both were denied. However, on January 15th of 1999, Judith was days from her execution date when Governor Fob James commuted her sentence to life in prison with a possibility of parole in another 15 years. What? What? That is such a drastic change from, oh, you're going to get death to, oh, you can have parole in 15 years. So the first time she did come up for parole, it was obviously denied, but she had also said she wasn't ready to be let out. Even though she had found God, she still didn't feel like she was ready to be out in the community, which I found was crazy. Yeah, that's I mean, that's good that she could admit that. But she actually will be up for parole in 2023. Hopefully she's not ready. I know. But how old is she now? 
So Judith is actually 59 right now. So, I mean, technically, she still has a while to live if she gets out. Yeah. Which. Hopefully she's too old now to want to commit rape and murder. But she was the victim, so it wasn't really her, remember? But she shot people. (laughs) Yeah, she did. She really did. Blink. So the crazy thing to me is that they would have never caught had it not been for Judith calling to report Lisa's body. Lisa was abducted in Georgia and her body was found in Alabama. No one was looking for her there. It would have taken years, maybe never, for someone to find her. Her voicemail connected the attempted abduction on October 4th to the murder of Janice Chapman that corroborated John Hancock's story that at first no one took seriously. So I love that it was like poetic justice, that it was because of her that this whole thing came crashing Mm -hmm. down. Yeah. And you wonder why. Maybe it's because she was young and dumb and thank goodness for that. But Right. Or I mean, maybe secretly she wanted to get caught or she wanted to be in the newspapers or who knows? Yeah, I have no idea. But onto the D, which is the dick mm-hmm. move. I think it is just complete and utter arrogance on her part because she thought that she would never get caught. And if she did, she would just blame it on Alvin. Well, and I think that has a little bit to do with her age. I mean, when you were a teenager, you thought you were invincible, right? I did. Totally. Invincible. You you can't think a big picture and down the road. You're like living in the moment, right? Exactly. Anyways, so that is the story of... Alvin and Judith Nelly. Okay, ABC crime fans. Um, Lady Ace and I have actually fallen in love with podcasting, and we just love talking. So we have actually decided to do another podcast, which is Real Talk Roulette. And this is a podcast where we let a roulette will choose our discussion, and we openly talk about it. Um, And our future goal is to get you guys involved and you guys will choose our topics and we'll have um, your guys, uh, you guys can write in and uh, share some info or your thoughts on certain topics as well. So if this is something that you guys want to do, go ahead and look up our podcast, which is Real Talk Roulette. On any podcast platform. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at ABC Crime Podcast. And for case photos and source materials, you will find that after each episode on our Instagram page. And please send us any case suggestions to our email at abccrimepodcast at gmail.com. This has been an A and B conversation. So So see you next week. week.